0: And now I started getting suicidal thoughts, except I'm like, there's no reason for me to be suicidal. I'm in college. I'm almost done. I'm about to graduate. I don't want to kill myself. I want to graduate college and get a job and move on with my life. And so I told him that and I have suicidal thoughts. Okay. He said, come back in two weeks. I was like, I'm not, you don't understand. I'm not going to make it two weeks. I feel like I'm going to die.
1: Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment.
2: Welcome to another educational edition of the Stigma Free Vet Zone from here in West Bend, Wisconsin, overlooking the Milwaukee River. Today we are traveling all the way down to sunny, hot uh, Arizona to visit with our guest, Angela Peacock. And she is going to share her experiences on um, withdrawals from psychiatric drugs and the upcoming release of her story in a documentary on this topic, which she will share with you. So let me uh, introduce to you Angela Peacock. Angela served in the United States Army for seven years as a communications specialist. She deployed to Iraq in 2003 and was medically evacuated due to a non-combat life-threatening illness. After medical retirement and a long period of recovery, she earned her bachelor's degree in science and psychology and master's in social work from Washington University in St. Louis. She was the first veteran since World War II to be inducted into Washington University's chapter of Phi Beta Kappa. She is a leader in the St. Louis uh, Student Veterans of America Community Building and growing three new chapters and organizing a consortium of chapters across the region. Some of Angela's past roles include Veterans of Foreign Wars Legislative Fellow, Wounded Warrior Project Courage Award recipient, member of the WWP National Campaign Team, and finalist for Student Veteran of the Year with Students Veterans of America. Her story of over medication after trauma appears in a new film, Medicating Normal, which is coming up, I believe, in January of uh, 2022. Her current work is to plan and host community screenings of Medicating Normal across the world, where members of the audience are invited to critically think about our modern mental health industry, informed consent, psychiatric drug use, and withdrawal. She is a mental health advocate, a writer, a YouTube creator who travels in her camper van across the United States with her service dog Raider to improve the mental health care system for veterans and civilians alike. She can be found online at beinghuman.com. RV. So let us, without any further whatever it is, uh, welcome in Angela Peacock. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm excited.
2: Yeah, this is actually the second time we've uh, been on something similar. You appeared at the War Memorial in in Milwaukee, but we didn't have a chance to find out who's Angela. Tell us a little bit where you came from, where you're born, family, you know, did you, as I asked you before, play the banjo when you were three years old or play sports and
0: yeah, I, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, in Ferguson, actually, the t- little North County area of St. Louis. Um, I played soccer my whole life, softball. I was really into like, I did cheerleading for a year, volleyball. I tried everything. I was really, I like to get my hands on a little bit of everything growing up. So sports. Sports, yeah. definitely in sports. Yeah, have
2: Brothers, sisters, family.
0: Oh, yeah. We have, uh, I have three brothers and sisters from my parents, but then I have eight total from stepsisters and stepbrothers. And, you know, well, no stepbrothers, they're all sisters, but I'm the oldest of eight, basically, with one brother, all all women. <laughs>
2: well, yeah. So when you, I like to ask this because it was an effect on me when I grew up, did you have a religious background?
0: I did. I grew up Catholic, going to Catholic school and high school, but my family converted to Mormon when I was 12. And that was really confusing. And so I left the Mormon church. I wasn't really a serious Mormon ever. I was like, like Catholic was so into me i couldn't I couldn't grasp on the Mormonism <laughs> so I left the whole I left the whole church thing when I was 18 definitely when I joined the army yeah and never whole, went back.
2: never went back to Catholic or any uh, but,
0: but i do I do i I would say the closest religion I am is, would be Catholic yeah definitely
2: so yeah. then you are coming to a time in your life when you decide you want to join the military and mm-hmm. what year was that what was the reason for joining your your inspiration and what were your expectations when you joined
0: so I joined when I was 18. I left high school and very quickly became a waitress at 5 30 in the morning, uh, seeing all the, the 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 pilots and the stewardesses off from St. Louis International Airport. And then I would get off at three o'clock and I would go to community college and I was paying my own way. And at night I would eat rice aroni and I just thought this is not the life that I wanted. You know, it was just like mundane, very boring, very monotonous. And I was like, my life is gonna go nowhere if I'm waiting tables making a hundred bucks a day and then paying my tuition and my rent on my apartment like i don't want li- I don't want this life I was always like I said I was always into like experiences sports I would go on like leadership trips I would always like try to get into those um I did like a close up trip it was called close up I went to washington d c when I was fifteen I went to New York when I was fifteen to visit a teacher that I had. I was always like very into experiences and like learning and foreign cultures and international, anything like interesting outside of the realm of high school. So okay. after after that, you know, mundane experience of wait, waiting tables in community college, I, every time I grocery shopped, I would see this strip mall and it said, Armed Forces Recruiting. And one day I just, I just, it <laughs> I, I walked in the, to be honest, I walked in the Marine Navy side first and they told me they couldn't guarantee me a job or uh, college money. And so I walked out of that door and then walked straight into the army door. And I was like, okay, I know I'm smart. I know I'm going to score high. I want the big bucks. I want the college money and I want the job. <laughs> So I got everything I signed up for, you know, and um, of course I thought I would be sitting behind a, a desk wearing class A's and that's totally not, I was the complete opposite of that. But um, yeah, I, so I, I, it was patriotic also in my family. My grandparents both served in World War Two. My grandma was a whack. My grandpa did 30 years in the Air Army Air Corps and then it changed to the Air Force. And then I think he was Air National Guard or something for 30 years. So he So there's there's a long history of seeing camouflage, you know, one weekend a month and two weeks, two weeks in the summer. So it was always like in my mind, like that's something you could do.
2: And what year are we now when you decide to join? That was
0: 98. And when I signed up, I actually signed up as a patriot missile launcher. Um, But then Saddam Hussein started acting up and I was like, no way, I'm not (laughs) going. don't want to go to war right when i sign up so i I went back to the recruiter and i said no i don't want that job he said you can't change it i was like okay i guess i'm not going then so then he said okay we'll change it so then they changed it to uh communications is what i changed to so i was just like i don't think going to the desert all the time is going to be fun so i changed it and i was communications camo
2: but but so now you are actually in the military you've enlisted you're you're, you've signed up you've taken the oath
0: February 1998. I signed up. I shipped off to base training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and then Fort Gordon, Georgia, was where my training was. Yep. Wow.
2: So your expectations now you you've had your reasons for joining. You wanted the education, which a lot of us did. The, the you know the benefits, the GI Bill, and all that sort of thing. But now you've got the actual. You're that you've made that transition. The signing is behind you. You're in. What are the expectations now?
0: I loved it. Oh my god, I loved it. It like immediately. Uh, I just had a fun time chasing all the guys. I, mean, I don't mean it like that. No, I mean, no, I meant we, we like, don't edit was, this
2: podcast. I know, it's okay.
0: No, I meant like athlete. I was an athlete. So oh, I had yeah, fun
2: competing, chasing, yes, competing with guys.
0: And so I would tell the guys, I said, listen, I'm running at 100% you know, a hundred points for my, for my age group and my time. Like I was at the top, you know, I'd get like 120 points on my run for the PT score. So I'd tell the guys, like, if you see me coming, you're about to fail because their their they like 60% tile was my 100%. So I was like, if you see me, you're in trouble, man, you better start running. <laughs> so I'd have fun with that. And ruck marching. I loved it. I, I gained like, I think 30 pounds of muscle in basic training. I couldn't believe it. I just loved, I loved PT. I loved, being active like all those like really cool like low low crawling underneath yeah. the i loved all that Under stuff the briar, awesome. yeah, sure. yeah i loved all of it shooting i was excellent at shooting training i loved when i got to ait i was like i know my job really good um and so i got promoted really quick i was an e5 in three years which is kind of like hard back then in 98 as, and as a female and then um I don't know. I, I also got sent to lots of schools like hazmat school. I was the NCO for urine, urine, urinalysis and drug testing for my unit. Uh, I drove ammo all over Germany because I was the ammo NCO. Uh, what else did I do? Um, oh, NBC. I did NBC nuclear biological chemical school. So I just loved they. my units always loved me. I always got the job done. I was always a go getter. I always had a lot of awards. I think I had like four, three RCOMs when I left, I think three. I don't remember. Anyway. So
2: so your curiosity and love of learning before you entered the military really served you well.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and it's It's a hard work ethic. ethic. My dad growing up was a carpenter and my grandpa was always in the garden. And so it was always like bred into me to work your ass off, which isn't actually a good thing sometimes. Because like I got in trouble with that too. Like throwing big heavy radios around when, you know, they were actually more than half my body weight. So that kind of injured my back a little bit. But uh, yeah, I had a very hard work ethic. You know, I wasn't lazy ever. I was always motivated and just took initiative whenever I could. Yeah, I'm still like that. Yeah, yeah.
2: so so now you're eating better than rice You've got a uh, room to sleep in. And now you're you're moving on, and you, you mentioned that you did uh, were, were deployed to Iraq. Mm-hmm. So yep. take, take us up to there. But before you do, how is your mom or your family responding to the fact that you're in your, the military, and how did they like this decision? And when you prepare to go to Iraq, are they backing you? Are they afraid? Is your mother how are they how are they communicating with you
0: they didn't really get it i don't think they had a frame of reference to understand i don't think i did to explain it to them i i think i told i downplayed it and told them it's going to be fine i'm in a safe area i don't have a crazy job we're just going to be sitting in a tent you know i downplayed it uh, and then, you know, I don't, I don't want to scare them. And then uh, I they saw that convoy. I don't know if you remember on CNN, you could see the convoy of vehicles driving from Kuwait all the way to Baghdad. And there's the a swarm. The yes. Yeah, I do. Sure. And they saw that. And I think it kind of got real to them. And I wasn't on CNN, but it was like right after that period of time. Like we did the same exact drive, you know, and because uh, they were just showing the invasion and we were behind that. But like by 45 days or so. So then I, I think they started getting nervous. My grandma would write me letters once a week um, and I still have all of them. They're actually in the van because I just think it's a cool memory. And, you know, she would communicate with me, typed letters. And then I bought a satellite phone from one of the um, Iraqi nationals and he would go get me like these cards and they, it was a dollar a minute to call home. So I would call really quick and just, I'm fine. I'm just checking in. Okay, bye. See you later. You know, but um, I think the hard part was when I got home because I, I left Iraq not on a good note and I was medically evacuated. And then I was in lawn school for two weeks, getting testing and all kinds of, they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And then I went home for Christmas and I just remember feeling really hurt because like, nobody asked me like, are you okay? You know, there was no yellow ribbon, welcome home. There was no parade. There was no signs on the door, nothing. And it just felt like they don't get it, you know? And I think that's part of like the hard, like the, hard way to transition home is when you don't have a family or support to like welcome you back and talk, talk it out with you or discuss the hard things and be there for you and not like send you off to a professional, you know?
2: So so when we, hard. when you get home, Angela, are you going back to home living with family? Uh, oh, did, did not they, yet. Yeah. Did they know you were coming home or, or was this uh, unexpected?
0: Yeah, they, I, that was just for Christmas. I was on leave in between stations because I was in Korea and then I did, I did South Korea for a year and then Germany for two years. And then six months of that was Iraq. There's a thing in the army where you can't be overseas more than three years. So you had to come home. So that was in my transition back to the States. And I got stationed in Fort Lewis after I was medically evacuated. So it was like in between that little gap. Yeah.
2: Gotcha. So, yeah. so now this, take us from that point now to where we want to go with this conversation. That so. You would like to share
0: So basically what happened was when I when I was in Iraq within a month, um, I started losing weight really fast and I didn't know what was happening to me. I started getting nosebleeds, uh, high heart rate, like my heart would just speed for no reason. Um, I felt faint. I had extreme gastrointestinal problems. I couldn't hold food down. I started getting low grade feeder fevers um, headaches, all kinds of weird stuff was happening. And so I went to sick call, which is like nothing. Cause this is like, this was May 2003. So there was no like hospitals in Baghdad, you know, there was like little caches, you know, the CSHs they call it combat support hospitals where it's just like for the gravely injured, you know, they don't care if you're just feeling down so i went to our like medic and he would give me tylenol or ibuprofen of course (laughs) but i kept i like i just had this feeling like something is wrong with me i don't know what's happening and then it just got progressively worse and i went from 140 pounds of muscle of like a running maniac to 100 pounds of skin and bone you could see all my cheekbones you could see my um my ribs and there's a photo of it in the film if you all watch the film medicating normal um You can see how bad I disintegrated. But anyway, so I kept going back to sick call and still doing my job and running convoys three times a week. And then they moved me to the ops tent. So then I'm like organizing the convoys and having to grow on them more because I'm, you know, in charge of training, the training NCO, whatever. And then uh, I just kept like, I was feeling faint. I was eating two plates of food every meal and it would not stay in my stomach. It was the strangest thing. So finally, my, my command basically said, your mission essential you're not going anywhere even though the brigade surgeon recommended i go routine medical evacuation for further testing back to germany then after 6 months of being in that state we got a we had a change of command we got a brand new commander they took one look at me and said you are going to die i'm like yeah i know and they they finally medevaced me out so long story short this is where like it all turned for the for the for the wrong looking back this is the moment that like changed my life okay i got back to launch duel they were doing testing the day after i got home my convoy got hit over in iraq so i'm outside one day and i see my first sergeant come walking up and i'm like what are you doing here and he's like oh your convoy got hit and i'm like what (laughs) so i see my soldier come back on on um um, a gurney and he's covered in wool blankets and he's got all these IVs hanging off of the bed and he's unconscious. And the doctors basically told me, you know, you can't see him now. He's going to go to surgery, come, come back in like 24 to 36 hours after he's in recovery. And then you can talk to him. So I said, okay, so I go talk to the soldier. He's telling me what happened. Basically the convoy hit an IED, um, shrapnel went through his back. He's bleeding out and the, the convoy is not moving. And he's like, you guys, I'm, injured, like I'm bleeding. And back then the uh, rule of engagement is if someone's hit, you drive up two miles to get out of the danger zone and you check on everybody. And then you make the decision like to med to medevac or what- whatever you need to do. So um, basically the convoy wasn't moving. He's thinking, oh my God, now we're going to get small arms fire. Cause that's kind of what they were doing back then. And eventually they see that he's injured. They get out of the area and now he's medically evacuated. So he's telling me the story. He just got out of surgery. He's got staples all in him. He's got a colostomy bag. He's like really upset. He's raising his voice. And I'm like, I can't, I can't take any more trauma. Like I'm done. I can't, I can't, I can't hold this emotion that's happening right now. I said, I can't talk right now. I got to go. I got to go. And I walk out of the room and I walk down the hallway and I see this uh, arrow on the wall that says psychiatry this way. So I walk right into the psychiatrist's office. I remember it was a major and I said, I'm having a really hard time adjusting. My soldier just got injured. I can't, I'm really upset. And he said, here's a medication. This is going to help you. It'll calm you down. And it was called clonopin. Clonizapan is the generic term. I took it. I think I instantly felt better, but then I started getting worse. And then I got the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder.
2: So so when you say it got worse what time period are We you, you first get the clonopin you're in launch duel and now you say it gets worse are we still in launch duel is this two days later uh, that you started getting worse or
0: I feel like I feel like it started I don't know it's such a blurry period of time okay because yeah. remember I'm highly traumatized I just left a war zone where every day I thought I was going to die either of getting hit by small arms fire and IED or dying from this unknown illness that I have um, oh, it, I just it doesn't remember. have to be exact to me, but yeah, not exact. But like, I would say, over the course of three months, okay, from, from November around Thanksgiving time until February, I got progressively worse very quickly. I stopped sleeping, I started, uh, it's like I, I had no energy, you know. Remember, I'm like 100 pounds, you know, thin, I feel sick physically. But then like mentally, I felt like every time an airplane would fly over on the airfield, I would start like ducking. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? And then somebody would slam a door and I would like totally jump. I remember every time I hear a door slam, I thought it was a gunshot because it just sounded like that to me. I don't know. And my brain was reading it that way. Uh, And I remember telling a doctor back at Fort Lewis, I'm having a hard time adjusting to Germany. And I felt like his answer should have been, yes, of course you are. You just left the war zone and now you're in Now you're in the United States. Like you went from thinking you're going to die every day. People, you know, hearing all these rumors about people getting killed and, you know, seeing injured civilians and all this barbed wire and shooting all day and all night to like, you're sitting in Fort Lewis, like just at a normal unit that hasn't deployed yet. Of course you're having a hard time adjusting, but that wasn't that, you know, then they added Paxil and then they added metoprolol for my heart rate. And then they added uh, something for sleep. I don't even remember. So, um, that I think that decision, though, to go to a psychiatrist to get help, because that's what I was told was the worst decision I ever made, because that led to 15 years of medication. I've been on over 45 psychiatric drugs. I've gotten all kinds of diagnoses that were probably drug, react, drug adverse effects like panic disorder. And now you have major depression. And now you have insomnia and now, you know, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, just like I just feel like it ruined my life. You know, it took my career and my marriage.
2: We are speaking with Army veteran Angela Peacock, who is sharing with us her punishing experiences uh, that leading up to uh, her use with psychiatric drug withdrawal. And uh, Angela, have a sip of water. We'll take a deep breath. I mean, I, I understand the passion, and I understand all these reactions. You know, you come out of a combat zone; all the, all of the survival instincts uh, don't don't go away right away. All the hypervigilance, all the, the uh, you know the the reaction, startle uh, response, and all of those sorts of things. But you didn't know they were normal. I think that's one of the problems with us. We come home and say, "Why is this stuff still with us?" So so anyway, now you're going through all of these months and the, the addiction to these antidepressants and the, the volume and different types of medication. Pick up from there.
0: Yeah. So, well, first I wouldn't call it addiction. I would just call it, I was taking them exactly as they told me to take them. You know, it was an antidepressant, a sleep medication, an anti-anxiety medication. Now you need something because you have headaches and you have stomach problems. And that led to from 2004 to 2006, I was put on 18 at the same time. And I hate to say this, but it's still very common. I meet veterans all the time that tell me I'm on 13, I'm on 16, I'm on 12. You know, it's very common. It hasn't changed. And then I was lucky to meet a psychiatrist at the VA who said, I'm a psychiatrist who doesn't believe in psychiatry. Who put you on all of this stuff? And I was like, it was a combination of VA doctors and civilian doctors. And they each kind of like said it was fine. Um, So he took me off 10 pretty quickly in a hospital. And that was in 2006. And then I don't know. I just slowly, I don't, I didn't have it in my mind to come off of everything. I was just trying to take less because All I felt like was I should be feeling better. If I'm taking 18 drugs that the doctors tell me are going to help me, I should be feeling better. Why do I feel so bad? And what I mean by that was like, I wasn't leaving my house. I lost my marriage. I didn't have any friends. I stopped talking to my family. I don't even know what I did for all those years. It was like I watched TV, read books, ate food, took showers. I mean, I don't know what I did. I was severely disabled, though. I can tell you that. So... I don't know. I just basically came off things one at a time, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly until 2016. So that was 6 years ago. Uh I finally got off the last drug and it almost killed me. Um I don't know should, should I stop there or how do you want
2: to No, this is how you want to explain it. What do you think is the value of sharing this? I, I think it's important for people to know the real story. So you, okay. but, but it's up right. to you. Whatever so, you're comfortable sharing.
0: Yeah. So 2015 this is what happened. I was tapering. I had already tapered off like Effexor, Cymbalta, Ambien. I mean, all these like heavy Seroquel, heavy duty drugs that are very common for PTSD. I got down to a Benzo, which is Ativan. Um, and now I know you're not supposed to give that to people with post-traumatic stress because it can make your post-traumatic stress worse, which is the boat I am in now. Um, but basically, anyway, I was only on one drug. I was taking it less than prescribed. I was doing exactly what my doctor told me to do. He said, okay, every month I want you to take off 0.25 milligrams. So I was doing that for two years. Okay. And as I got lower and lower, I started feeling worse and worse. I started having intrusive thoughts, like thinking that the tornado was going to come and hit my house. I got really scared. I had a lot of fear. Um, I, my sleep was all broken. I started having like electrical shocks, like brain zaps, all kinds of weird, um, things. And I would tell the doctor and he said, Oh, I think you have, what did he call it? Agitated depression and I want to put you on lithium. And I said, no, I'm not taking any more of these drugs. I'm done. I want to come off of this, you know? So I just kept tapering the way I'm supposed to taper. And now I started getting suicidal thoughts, except I'm like, there's no reason for me to be suicidal. I'm in college. I'm almost done. I'm about to graduate. I'm, I don't want to kill myself. I want to graduate college and get a job and move on with my life, you know? Uh, and so I told him that and I have suicidal thoughts. Okay. He said, come back in two weeks. I was like, I'm not, you don't understand. I'm not going to make it two weeks. I feel like I'm going to die. So, um, I think I made it six days. It was around new years. I checked myself into the hospital. Basically I was standing in the kitchen cutting up carrots and potatoes to make pot roast. And I had this overwhelming urge to stab myself. And I have, listen, I have never been a knife person. I don't think about, I've never, I'm a gun person. You know what I mean? Like I was in the military. I had my own handgun. Like, why would I want to stab myself? This was like a totally foreign thought to me. It scared the crap out of me. So I just put the knife down. I called my sister. I said, you have to come get my service dog. I'm going in the hospital. This is it. I go in the hospital. I tell them what I'm experiencing. Uh, I was greeted with two police officers in a plastic wheelchair. I thought this is so dehumanizing. Like I'm here voluntarily, you know. Um, And then they just basically said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, this medication is obviously not working. So just take me off of it because I shouldn't be anxious if I'm taking an anxiety medicine. So they took me off of it. And six days later, I entered the gates of hell of benzo withdrawal that I did not even know existed. I had, like I said, a bachelor's degree in psychology. I've been to 12-step meetings in the past. I've been to all kinds of retreats, seen all kinds of social workers. Not one person told me, you can have withdrawal even taking a low dose of a benzo. Nobody told me that. Nobody. So when I say withdrawal, I'm telling you, it was the most severe thing I did not even know existed. It was not compatible with human life the, the amount of suffering that I've been through. Uh, I couldn't shower standing up for two years. I couldn't speak for four months. I couldn't look at social media because the people's faces scared the shit out of me. I couldn't talk on the phone. I had to retrain myself how to, to, how to read the amount of terror and fear and anxiety for three years, like almost like in a mild psychotic state for three years. Um, and now I'm six years off. Um, And I'm much better, much better, but I still have these lasting effects that nobody can quite explain. And I I can only gather that I've suffered from, you know, 15 years of psychiatric drugs that nobody knows what they do in combination or long-term. And this is what I get. And, you know, I still have the original post-traumatic stress and now I have the medical post-traumatic stress on top of it because I'm terrified of medications and drugs and doctors that don't believe me and nurses that just push medication on me over and over again. And that's not what I want for my life anymore. So, um, um, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And the last thing I'll say is that the filmmakers found me when I was about 10 months off and I was, you know, starting to get a tiny bit better, but they basically followed my story for three years Uh, along with, uh, let
2: me stop you just for a second, Angela, we're speaking with, um, Army veteran Angela Peacock, who is sharing with us uh, her punishing experiences with psychiatric drug withdrawal. And now we're leading up to the, the beginnings of the creation of your documentary. But what I would, would like to ask you, Angela, you've done all this kind of on your own. You're living by yourself. Nobody else understands it. The doctors are there. They're, but, but psychologically, you're, you're isolated with yourself. Are you going to meet these other people in a documentary? And how important was that to find other people were experiencing the very same thing I, that had to be just in itself healing to say, no kidding. You too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the only way I got through it was peer support groups online actually was uh, finding other people. There's all these websites. I could not believe it. I just could not, it's, I'm saying I couldn't believe it. Cause I was training to be a mental health professional and I had no idea. There was like this underground of people coming off psychiatric drugs Cause their doctor wouldn't help them or that the, the medication turned out to be harmful to them. And they would try to, the doctor would try to take them off overnight and they're like, no, I can't do it that way. Like I've been taking, you know, effects for 20 years. I need to go slowly, but there was thousands of these patients. I could not believe it. I still can't really believe it. Like the medical establishment just kind of left us in the dark. Like we know how to put you on, but we don't know how to take you off. So all these people are coming off. So yes, I got through it like that. But at one point in the film, if you watch it, um, I met another veteran that was going through the same exact thing that was on the same exact medication I was on. And we met in, um, Maryland and we both went to this retreat about it's called warfighter advance. And they kind of teach veterans about like, what is the diagnosis? What can it do for you? What can medication do for you? What can't it do for you? And like, here's some other options if you have mental health struggles. So yes, when I met him, the funny part is I kept telling the filmmaker, I got to talk to Dave like right now. And they're like, no, you can't. We have to mic you first and we have to talk, you know, I'm put you in a room. and It has to be quiet. <laughs> I was were, like, no, yes, you don't understand. Yeah. I have talked to him yeah. right now because we yeah. have been to the same place. And the reason I knew that was because the first night of the retreat, they did a circle and they had each one of us kind of share where we're from, what our name was, what our service was. And he started crying. He's just like, I'm suffering. These drugs have just totally debilitated me and he was a double mit degree holder from mit he's like a genius and he like now is diagnosed with early onset dementia at 35 so i just like i gotta talk to this guy like right now we've been the same place you know
2: yeah. i i actually have seen the documentary down at the, the war memorial and uh it, it it is very very educational, very enlightening, but you do see the punishment, and the man you 're referring to also lost his wife, I believe, at least for a period of time but there were other there were others in that in the documentary have also experienced that, but there were medical professionals who also seemed to be aware of this, and I was shocked by that the people who are you would think that All psychiatrists and mental health providers are in the same boat. You have people that are very well educated at high levels of mental health who see this and and are stunned themselves or, or really opposed to this type of treatment.
0: Yeah. The film weaves the personal stories of five people that were on psychiatric drugs and coming off with experts in the field like Anna Lemke at Stanford. She just wrote the book Dopamine Nation. Alan Francis, who wrote the DSM-IV, he was head of the DSM-IV task force. He's at Duke. David Cohen from UCLA. Peter Gertschuh, who was the founder of Cochrane Collaboration, which is like the leading scientific resource. So, yeah, there's all these experts telling, like, this is a problem. Our mental health industry hands out medications. We don't really know what they do long term. We don't know how to take people off of them safely. We don't know the long term damage that they cause. That yeah, they might be helpful for some people in the short term, but in the long term, the evidence does not bear out that they're actually helpful. They can they can be harmful.
2: One of the things that we've neglected to do so far in this educational conversation is put a title to your documentary. I think that explains a lot more. Oh
0: yeah, the title is <laughs> <Yeah>. "Medicating <laughs> Normal." So basically, say it, say base, it one more time. Medicating yeah. normal. Yeah. You know, and basically the basis is that people have normal reactions to things in their life, you know, right now pandemic stress, everybody's got anxiety. Of course you should have anxiety. It's, it's actually helping you to have a little anxiety so that you don't, you know, risk your health and your loved one's health. You know, it's, it's a normal part of being a human being. These are signals. If you're, you know, if you're living in racism or poverty and you're feeling depressed, it's probably, it's there for a reason. It's not something to be medicated away and ignored and telling you that you have a disorder because you're poor. Like it's ridiculous. If you really think about it.
2: I would agree, and one of the things that I remember as a soldier coming home was I did not expect to have the reactions I was having. I did not expect nightmares. I did not expect to be hypervigilant. I did not expect the the, uh, startle response, to be aware walking down a beautiful city and looking for booby traps behind trees or down alleys, all of these different things, and and that starts to play on you. And then you start to lose the sleep, and then once you lose the sleep, everything else just you know continually falls down where as opposed to medication and I'm not qualified to say anything about medication and I won't and I will not except in my experience it seemed to me and this is one of the reasons we do this podcast Angela is education if I had gone if I if everything in, that I had experienced in war or while I was in the military was expected I'd have no issues well if I have the issues then all this is unexpected well if it's unexpected then teach me how to resolve it Here's the reaction. How do I resolve this so that I can move on? But just to say, okay, here's your reaction. Take these uh, without a little bit further evidence just makes absolutely no sense to me. So the logic you're following, I get it. Um, I I really do. Uh, But now take us to the documentary. You've made this documentary. It's coming out. And what is your intention now to continue to work on this horrible reactions that you've had? And I don't know if you would like to... Include some of the social pages where people can catch up with this or not.
0: Sure. Well, I, I did not make it, but I'm in it. I'm in, yeah. one of the, I'm yeah. one of the stories. Yeah, I'm one of the stories, and they're so gracious to let me help roll it out. So basically, I've done 180 community screenings all over the world. We've done Brazil, Europe, UK, all the, a bunch of the United States. So what we do is we host a film. And then uh, we have a discussion afterwards with a panel of experts or people with lived experience. And we kind of talk about all these issues like informed consent or harm reduction. Like when should people take less medication or when are they appropriate to use? Like all these topics we discuss. So, yes, we have a website. It's medicatingnormal.com. We're also on all the social media, YouTube. We have a YouTube channel with like 180 videos on it, little little snippets, little clips that are educational, and then panel discussions that are long form. Every day I post an article on Facebook, so you could totally learn about all these issues from different perspectives um, through our Facebook page too, and Twitter.
2: And, and where would they find the YouTube channel? Where would they find the Facebook channel, the yeah, page? Just
0: search. Right. All you got to do is go to the platform and search Medicating Normal, and it should pop right up.
2: One of the things that you mentioned, and... You had shared this with me earlier, which I think is – I'd ask you, and hopefully I think you'll share this with us. Tell us more about shared decision. I never heard this until you mentioned this. How important just this thought of when you're going to visit a, a mental health professional, actually anybody in the mental, medical field, how to take responsibility for and participate in your health care?
0: Yeah, so there's two. there's two issues here. One is health literacy, like having a basic knowledge about – like what questions do I ask my doctor when they prescribe me a medication, or what can I ask the pharmacist? Um, just asking the question. For young females, I see this all the time. They go to, they get put on an antidepressant because they left home and went to college, and then they're on it for a couple years. The college is rolling down, and now they want to get married and have children, and they're like, "Wait a minute, what do I do about my antidepressant?" You know, there's like these questions that we should be asking. Um, that's health, basic health literacy, like knowing how to read a pamphlet, the drug pamphlet that you get. Like, what does this mean to me? We don't learn any of these skills. Then there's a second thing called shared decision-making, which means it's not, I guess it's what I learned, this is what I learned the hard way is I don't just go to a professional and hand them my body and say, here, fix me. You know, there's like a whole bunch of questions I should be asking, like how long should I take this medication? What are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the alternatives? Um, And then maybe I go home and like, think about it and talk to my loved ones about it and maybe do a little reading, read the FDA pamphlet and then decide for myself, like, is this a risk that I'm willing to take? Is there an alternative that's less harmful? but it's a shared decision. It's not like the doctor just telling me what I'm supposed to do. And I'm just blindly following that. And I think in the military, especially because we were so used to taking orders, you know, when a major told me take this medication, I didn't ask one question. It was like, yes, sir. I will do what you tell me to do if this is going to make me feel better. So it's, it's all about empowerment, you know, taking responsibility for your own health decisions and really educating yourself on like, what do I want to do? And, You know, what am I what risk am I willing to take? What alternatives should I be seeking
2: and participating at at, at the highest level? And I'm not so certain that it's just in the military because we were under strict disciplines and all that. Of course, you know, that's partially true. I think there's just been a general sense uh, in in the world that psychiatrists will naturally you go there and they're going to sprinkle magic pixie dust on you and you're going to be fine. And I had to learn that lesson is not there. You have to go there and ask them to help guide you through to where you want to be to. They're not going to do the work. You have to do the work. I just, I wish I would have known about this shared decision-making. Uh, I'm an older guy now, but 50 years ago when I came home from Vietnam, that there's this just such valuable information. So share with us now. Take a couple of minutes. Wow. Do you have resources, encouragement, hope for people? Where would you send them? I mean, we can all watch a documentary, but how how would you, if you were watching the documentary, what steps would you ask people to take or, or suggest to them or provide for them?
0: Yeah, first, I would say whatever you're feeling right now, there's a reason for it. There's meaning for it. It's not just something to be medicated away. Um, in fact, I, I learned the hard way. I medicated it away for 15 years. And then when I took the medication away, here it is again, it's still here, you know? So there's no free lunch is what they say in the film. Um, So, yeah, I think there's a lot of suffering out there. There's a lot of reasons to be suffering. Um, I think good friends can help you so much. A peer support group can help you so much. I'm involved in one with Wounded warrior project. It's helped me immensely. Um, There's all kinds of other things, equine therapy, biofeedback, neurofeedback, meditation, yoga. I know vets with, I know a veteran, with he, he's a W amputee and he's a yoga teacher and it's completely changed his life. It's just us getting exposed to those things is the tricky part. So I would say from the military perspective, find an organization that calls to you. I mean, there's DAV, VFW, American Legion, Wounded Warrior Project, our, Team RW, RWB, Rubicon. I can keep going and keep, there's 40,000 charities in the United States. You know, there's, there's some really cool ones like Boulder Retreat. Uh, I saw there was a snowboard clinic, snowboard and skiing clinic at Mammoth Mountain, California, winter sports clinic. There's all kinds of things you can try. And for, what I've learned is like some things work for a little while and then they stop working and you got to change it up. This is a lifelong journey. You cannot heal from war overnight. It's not going to happen. You're going to feel like shit when you come home. That is part of the deal. If you didn't feel like shit, I'd be worried about you. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we have resources on our website, a ton. We have, um, you can watch the film right now for $7, or you can wait until January and the film will be free on PBS and select cities. We're adding dates every single day, but they're all on our website. And then if you look on our website, there's different tabs. One says like resources, alternatives. Um, I should probably add. I should probably add a tab for veterans only. So it would be veteran specific. That might be a good idea that I'm just thinking now. But there's tons of alternatives, resources, and like I said, our website, all kinds of stuff on our website. It's www.medicatingnormal.com.
2: And you also have um, your site that we shared earlier uh, with, your, with your bio, and that is Being Human RV is to kind of follow the work that you're doing as well. Uh, the other thing, uh, let me ask you this quickly, Angela. We're looking at Angela. We're hearing Angela. Where's family in all of this? How does the fa- the family effect of all of this has got to be just uh, uh, something to take into consideration as well, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about family is I've shown this film to and, ta- and had discussions with family members and caregivers and spouses. And it's so astonishing to me. This is a reaction I didn't expect. But the spouses will say, oh, my God. Maybe, you know, I didn't understand why my husband was getting worse. I thought his PTSD was severe, but now that I'm looking at he's on 14 medication, maybe the medication could be a reason why he's worse. And what if we took him off a few very slowly with under medical supervision, could he get better? And so it opens this avenue of hope where it's like, we've tried everything else and I'm not really sure what we're supposed to do, but medication was not something, you know, that I had ever thought of because you keep going to the doctor and they keep giving you more meds, you know, cause you're so bad off. So yeah, they're that for me, whereas my family, some are, some I'm close to, some I'm not so close to. Remember, I was literally a mental health patient for 15 years. I was completely disabled. I was living in my house, not talking to anyone. So I lost my marriage. I don't have a partner. I'd lost those years of childbearing age because of all of this. Um, So I have good friends that I pick that help me, I would say. And I, I stay close to the community of people that understand what I've been through and I hope you know more healing in that area is in my future is all I can say well
2: you certainly and and we certainly I certainly wish you that and but but at the same time you're you're living in the environment of healthy people you're 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 with the people in the environment that works for you that keeps you healthy and and certainly I hope is giving you hope that someday, this well well you're you're certainly doing well now i mean you look very healthy to me today uh, yeah you look you look awfully good but to to have that hope to have that uh, be out of the darkness i think must be very very inspirational for you
0: yeah the difference is when i was staying in my house for 15 years on tons of meds i didn't even want to go outside like there was not even you know, I want to want to do something. Now it's like, I want to see the world. I want to travel in my van. I want to have really cool experiences. I want to, you know, I'm starting to get myself back again. That part of me that was really curious and looking after experiences, you know? And so I'm like, today I'm going to drive about an hour and a half to go see my first boss in the army. Wow. And he, he calls me Joe. Cause like GI Joe, and so I was his first female he ever had. And he was like, I don't want a female on my team. Hell no. And he's like, Angie, you broke every everything I thought, every con- preconception I thought about female veterans, like in the Army. So I'm going to go see him today. Um, but I like want to want to live now. I want to get out there and have fun experiences and have friends and meet cool people. And I didn't have that for 15 years.
2: Wow. Uh, and, and I get that because there was a time in my life where I forgot what fresh air smelled like. Uh, I forgot to marvel at just the color of the flowers along the highway, Uh, hear the birds sing, see nature. Marveling at nature and getting out of myself into something that was much bigger than me was one of the greatest things that I I found. It's not about me being so internalized, but finding something bigger than human nature, bigger than myself – Uh, in nature was, it's still, I marvel at nature and what a country to go around and see the nature in the United States. So listen, give us one sentence of hope for everybody out there. Something, you know, don't quit. Go on.
0: You are not broken. You are not broken.
2: Wow. Wow. Isn't that a fact? Wow. Angela Peacock. Thank you so much for sharing this for, for me, very educational information. Um, And I I mean this, I know you've been struggling with uh, some uh, weird rash lately that we hope you don't have to explain that, Uh, but I personally wish you all the success in the work you're doing. And I'm not certain, but I'm going to try and guess that for me, the same thing we do with this podcast, when you start helping other people, that becomes part of the therapy as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh,
2: Yeah. So again, the name of the documentary coming uh, out. Medicating Normal, Mm -hmm. and you can find that online right now. Uh, And, you know, people might say, well, you're going to charge me $7. Well, it costs money to make these things. But if you want to wait, it'll be free in in January. So that's all part of it as well. And your website is?
0: Uh, Medicatingnormal.com. Or if you want to follow me personally, just put in Being Human RV on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube.
2: Okay. So for our listeners, if you are listening in and you are experiencing depression or suicide or thoughts in general that you would like to improve your, your mental health or your health in general... Um, take hope from Angela's experience and speak to a real person. Call, at least get started with the Veterans Crisis Line if you can or if you would like to. There's a human voice there at 1-800-273-8255 and then press the number one. Uh, Recognizing also, at least for me, was very important, that the stigmas offer no help, those things that keep you from going to get help. Ask yourself what help you're actually getting. What help uh, are they doing? To improve the painful quality of her life and get rid of the stigmas, look over them. Uh, and if you would like more um, resources, please go to our website at Veterans dot org, or simply the letters OF the number four Vets dot org, or go to the websites that uh, Angela Peacock has shared with uh, with us today. So. We are partially funded by the Charles E. Kubley Foundation, and this family and foundation has experienced their own losses through depression and suicide. So check out their website at charlesekubleyfoundation.org. For co-host Bob Bach, I am Mike Orban. Defy that stigma, and uh, with every ounce of courage you can, there's life waiting for you out there. So thank you for joining us on the Stigma-Free Vet Zone. And remember, this is educational. It's not stigmatizing.
1: Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, orbanfoundationforveterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.